All righty, good evening. It's uh, good to be in the house of the Lord this evening, and uh, it's good to see everyone here, and I'm thankful for the opportunity to preach tonight. I'm also thankful for heat, amen? And uh, the, uh, this, earlier today, we had uh, Brother Jason Rischel and his family with us, and uh, he's actually, uh, we were actually at college at uh, the same time together, and uh, we were freshmen, graduated all at the same time, and we were actually roommates for at least a semester, I think it was one semester, maybe two and uh, anyways, we got to see him and spend some time with him last night. And uh, we were talking to him about uh, over supper, over um, talking about Burkina Faso and all that stuff. And, and uh, I said, hey, how's the, how's the weather in Burkina Faso? And he goes, it's just hot all the time. And uh, he said, we do have a, a rainy season uh, that lasts about three, maybe four months. He said, but most of the time it's just hot. I said, okay. And he said, well, he said, if you ever come there, hint, hint. And I was like, okay, I got you. He said, if you ever come there, he said, come in December or January. And I said, he goes, that's the best weather. And I said, really? He goes, yeah, it gets down to 85. <laughs> and I said, come again? He said, it gets down to 85. And I said, well, if it gets down to 85, where does it go up to? And he said, eh, most of the time it's, I guess, around 110, maybe 115. And I went, and I was, I, was like, are you, I was like, are you serious? He said, yeah. He goes, 110, 115. He goes, now look, when it's 85 outside, he goes, how people are dressed around here right now, like with the coats and scarves and toboggans and, and gloves on. He goes, when it's 85 in Burkina Faso, that's how people are dressed. I was like, they're wearing coats and toboggans and gloves when it's 85? And he said, yes. And I was like, wow. So walking around here, they are, they're a little cold, but, uh, but anyways, I am thankful that it is warm in here this evening, uh, especially when it you know, gets down in the 30s and the 20s and the teens, and then the wind just, oh my goodness, it's terrible. But uh, I'm, I'm thankful to be here tonight, I'm thankful to be amongst friends, amen, and like I said, Brother uh, Jason Richel and his family, they're friends, and uh, we, we exchanged a few stories last night as well, so it was always, it's always good to catch up with friends, but I'm thankful to be amongst my church family tonight, and I'm thankful for that opportunity. I'm thankful they let me out of the back with the little kids. I'm, I am grateful for that as well, all right? Anyways, um, y'all want to open God's Word together for a few moments? Let's do it. All right, the book of Psalms, Psalm 130. Uh, we're going to look at this, uh, just a short psalm, now, only about eight verses. And uh, we'll look at the entire thing this evening. And, uh, you know, when you, when you come to church, uh, the church basically has, has three things that the church tries to do. Number one, that is exalt the Savior. Number two, evangelize the lost. And number three, to edify the believer. And uh, that's what I want to do tonight, just encourage one another. You know, there's a lot of craziness, a lot of uh, uncertainty, a lot of uh, just chaos out in the world right now. And so when we can come together as a church family and get some comfort and get some encouragement, uh, that is one of the greatest benefits that we have as children of God, to come together as a church family. Psalm 130, let's begin reading in verse 1. The Bible says this, Out of the depths have I cried unto thee, O Lord. Lord, hear my voice. Let thine ears be attentive to the voice of my supplications. If thou, Lord, shouldest mark iniquities, O Lord, who shall stand? But there is forgiveness with thee, that thou mayest be feared. I wait for the Lord, my soul doth wait, and in his word do I hope. 
My soul waiteth for the Lord more than they that watch for the morning. I say more than they that watch for the morning. Let Israel hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is mercy. With him is plenteous redemption. And he shall redeem Israel from all his iniquities. Let's pray. Dear Lord, most precious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you, Lord, for the many blessings that you have given us. Lord God, we thank you most importantly and above all for coming to this earth, dying for our sins, for giving us eternal life. And Lord, we thank you so much for the honor and the privilege that it is and the freedom that we have to come and to worship you this evening. And I pray that you would help us to do just that. Lord, help our hearts and our minds to be in tune with you, with your word. And Lord, help us just to worship you this evening. And Lord, without you, we are nothing and we need you every second of the day. And I pray, God, that you would be with our time this evening. And I pray that you would forgive me my sin. And fill me with your spirit and help me to say exactly what it is you want. Nothing more, nothing less. Lord, I pray that you would be with us this evening. Speak to hearts. Lord, we love you. Thank you for loving us. In Jesus' name we do pray. Amen. In Psalm 130, I don't know if in your Bible it has this. Uh, some Bibles do, some Bibles don't. But somewhere between where it says Psalm 130 and the first verse, or maybe yours comes after, it says a song of degrees. Who here has that in your Bibles? Okay, most of you do. A song of degree was, is basically the easiest way to explain it is that all of them kind of go together and they build one upon another. And when and we get to Psalm 130, it is a song of degrees. They are building together, previous ones and ones after. And there's a little bit of discrepancy about who the human penman for Psalm 130 is. Most people tend to believe that it was David and that he wrote this psalm whenever he was going through a difficult situation. Uh, most believe it was either when he was being hunted by Saul or whether he was uh, bearing the guilt when he committed adultery with Bathsheba. Most, pe most people believe that it was David. However, there are a few who believe that someone else wrote it. There was uh, one particular, a uh, couple different guys I read after yesterday. One of them, uh, a couple of them, they believed it was Ezra. And Ezra, whenever he was trying to help Nehemiah kind of get Jerusalem and the nation of Israel kind of going back again, uh, that, that they faced some difficulties. And so uh, a couple guys believe it was Ezra. Someone else that I read after believed it was Hezekiah. And so when, when, there's a little bit of discrepancy there about who exactly the human penman is for Psalm 130. Now I will say... Whenever we come to a portion or a passage of Scripture, it does help us to know who the human penman is. It kind of helps us with our, little, our understanding a little bit better and with the circumstances behind it. It kind of helps us a little bit there. But regardless of who the human penman is for Psalm 130, this short psalm of only eight verses gives us something that every single one of us as Christians, as God's people, needs. And that is finding hope in hopeless situations. Finding hope in hopeless situations. And so that's what I want to preach on for just a few minutes tonight. Is finding hope in hopeless situations. We've all been there. We've all done that when it comes to a hopeless situation. And so as we go through this psalm, we're just going to look at two things this evening. And first thing we're going to look at is the hopeless. The hopeless. Whoever the human penman was, let's look at what he wrote. Verse number one. The Bible says this. Out of the depths have I cried unto thee, O Lord. 
That phrase, out of the depths, whenever we read that phrase anywhere in Scripture, you will know that whoever is writing has found themselves in a low point of life. Out of the depths have I cried unto thee, O Lord. Let's just think about the different people that could be the human feminine. Let's think about David for a second. And the low points. Out of the depths have I cried unto thee, O Lord. Think about all that David went through. I mean, David, when you think about early in his life, he shows up at battle one day to check on his brothers from a commandment that his dad told him to do. He goes to battle, and Saul's there, his brothers are there, the armies of Israel are there, and they see this nine over nine-foot, six-inch giant named Goliath. A little bit of uh, other people say maybe even 11 feet tall. He's a tall dude, all right? He's a tall dude. And nobody... From Israel really wants to go fight this oversized hairy Philistine. Nobody wants to take him on. I wouldn't. But here comes David. He shows up. I'll fight him. And through the help of God, David overcomes Goliath. Through the help of God. But what happens is that the people are so excited... About what David did. They're like Saul has killed his thousands. But David his tens tens of thousands. And jealousy. Overtakes the heart of Saul. And so Saul begins to hunt David. And so here you have David. He is literally running for his life. From the guy that he tried to help. He's living in caves. He's finding anything that he can scrap-wise to eat. He is running for his life. Out of the depths have I cried unto thee, O Lord. That could work. Think about when he committed adultery with Bathsheba. And the guilt that he is bearing on his shoulders from that. Because he committed adultery with Bathsheba. He tried to cover it up. And then just days after the after that baby was born that was conceived between David and Bathsheba, that baby dies days after being born. And so imagine the guilt and the weight that David is bearing on his heart, on his shoulders, on his mind, of the sin, covering it up, and then that baby paying the penalty for it. Out of the depths have I cried. Or we could also say, what about with David and and Absalom? David is king, the rightful king of Israel. And one of his sons comes in and basically throws a mutiny and tries to overtake the kingdom from his dad. I couldn't imagine what that would even begin to feel like, nor do I want to. Out of the depths have I cried unto thee, O Lord. That, That fits in David's life, in his low points. Think about with Ezra. The nation of Israel is almost non-existent. After King Solomon, you have a separation of the nation of Israel. Israel takes ten tribes of the north. Judah takes two tribes of the south. And the kings, as you read through them, they're pretty much all of them awful. You'll have a few good ones here and there sprinkled in. But they just go through and basically, here comes Assyria. They take the northern kingdom and uh, Babylon comes in years later and takes the southern kingdom and then here you have Ezra he's trying to hold everything together 
And here comes Nehemiah to try to help them. And so they're trying to get the city of Jerusalem rebuilt. And all they face is opposition the entire time. Here comes Samballot. Here comes Tobiah. Here comes Geshem. And they are trying to do their best to stop Nehemiah. And Ezra's trying to help out Nehemiah a little bit. And, and, but it's just, it's just opposition after opposition. As a matter of fact, Sanballat and Tobiah get to one of Nehemiah's trusted friends. And they convince his tr- one of his friends to turn against him. You talk about a low point in Nehemiah's life. So some say that may, I mean, even Ezra might fit in there with his writings about Nehemiah. It could have been Hezekiah. Hezekiah was one of the few good kings that was sprinkled in all the bad kings. Hezekiah's dad wasn't that great of a king. Hezekiah's son was really not a good king. His son was one of the longer reigns, but also one of the worst kings that they had. But here you have Hezekiah, and so Hezekiah is trying to right all the wrongs that was done with Israel. And, of course, when you're trying to take wrong and make it right, you're going to get opposition. At one point, his kingdom is surrounded by Sennacherib. And he pretty much has no other options except for to surrender. At another point of Hezekiah's life, he's laying on his deathbed. And so, literally, in verse 1, Out of the depths have I cried unto thee, O Lord. Anywhere... In that, just in that one verse, we could have, and we, we could obvious, honestly, we could go through the scriptures and find more examples. But the human penman, we don't know. Was it David? I don't know. Was it Ezra? Not sure. Was it Hezekiah? Possibly. But whoever the human penman was, they are at a very low point in their life. And then we get to verse 2 where the Bible says this. Lord, hear my voice. Let thine ears be attentive to the voice of my supplications. Have you ever found yourself there? In a hopeless situation? And you're just begging God, please hear me. I imagine what David was praying when he was in the caves. Hiding from Saul. Or the guilt that he was carrying. Or when he's on the run from his own son. All the opposition is coming against Ezra and Nehemiah. Hezekiah standing in his throne room. Looking outside the city walls. And all he sees is all the way around is the enemy. Waiting him out. Waiting for his surrender. And all of them. Possibly begging God, Lord, hear my voice. Let thine ears be attentive to the voice of my supplication. Here's what happens when it comes to tragedies. It puts things in perspective, but it also drives us to our knees. I remember where I was the day after, or I remember where I was on 9-11. I was in school. And I remember the Sunday, the first Sunday after 9-11 happened. Church was packed. Y'all may remember that as well, wherever you were at. Church was packed. I mean, every seat was filled. We had gone downstairs and had to get 
chairs in that country church and chair, uh, chairs lined the, the center aisle. The, the side aisles were only about this wide anyway. And so we had chairs on either side. We had standing room only. We had chairs in the very back in the vestibule where you really couldn't hear what was going on. But it was just, it was amazing what had happened. Tragedy had drove America to her knees. And America as a country, we were crying out to God. Lord, hear my voice. And let thine ears be attentive to the voice of my supplications. I think in our hopeless situations, we have all found ourselves there. But then we get to verse 3. And verse 3 says this. If thou, Lord, shouldest mark iniquities. That's an interesting phrase. If thou, Lord, shouldest mark iniquities. There may be someone in this room this evening, your hopeless situation that you're in, it's not financial. You may be good. It may not be family. It may not be physical situation. There may be someone here, your hopeless situation is a sin problem. And to be honest with you, that's a hopeless situation. You may have never had your sins forgiven by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's a hopeless situation. You have no hope. If you're still rejecting the free gift of salvation from Christ. However, there may be a, a Christian here. Maybe there is a sin that it just it's a habit. And it is, you just can't quite seem to break it. And here's the thing. We are human we are finite, and our minds are extremely limited to where our, our, our wisdom and our knowledge and our understanding doesn't even, it's not even worth a conversation to compare to the wisdom and knowledge and intellect of God. doesn't even deserve to have a conversation. Does anybody in here remember the sins that you did five years ago? What about three months ago? Anybody? Not really? I don't. But look what, look what he says in the verse here. If thou, Lord, shouldest mark iniquities. We can't, but God could if he wanted to. And if he did, look at the verse. If thou, Lord, shouldest mark iniquities, O Lord, who shall stand? Lord, if you could mark every single time that we sinned, and remembered it if you wanted to, and if you would, if you did, who's going to be able to stand against you? Who is going to find hope in that? That's we're beyond hope if God marked everything that we did. And by the way, how many sins does it take to make a sinner? Just one. But that might be the hopeless situation. Maybe a sin problem. And that's why a lot of people believe what, it was either David who wrote this as the human penman with his sin with Bathsheba with verse 3 or was Hezekiah. And how could it be Hezekiah? Well, the entire country had really an apathetic attitude. And he was trying to right everything that was wrong. And he was bearing the sin of the entire country. And so some believe because of verse 3 and the way that it's, that way that it's written that it was Hezekiah. But regardless of who the human penman is, we are in a hopeless situation. And you may find yourselves, I may find myself 
in a hopeless situation. One where it doesn't really seem we, can, we can't really see the light at the end of the tunnel. We're struggling to find any glimpse of getting out of it. Out of the depths have I cried unto thee, O Lord. But then we get to verse 4. And that brings us to the second thing. And the two things we're going to look at. The hopeless and then, number two, the hopeful. You ever been in a hopeless situation? You look at it and you're just like, I don't see a way out of this thing. This is tough. It's not fun. It stinks. I told the teenagers there's a difference between stinks and stanks. Stinks, stinks is bad. Stanks is really bad. This whole situation just stinks. It's tough. But we get to verse 4. The Bible says this. But there is forgiveness with thee. In verse 1, he's crying out, Out of the depths have I cried unto thee. God, please hear my prayer. And Lord, if, you're gonna, if you would, or if you're going to mark iniquities, there is no hope in this situation. But God, when we come to you, there is forgiveness. And because of that, just that one word forgiveness, it can take us from a hopeless situation to a hopeful situation. I mean, you think, think about the very fact of forgiveness. The, the, the very fact that, and I did this years ago, and you may, I, I hope you remember when. But I remember years ago when I was nine years old, I remember asking God to forgive me of my sins. I remember that. I remember saying, God, I know I'm a sinner and I need you as my Savior. I don't want to spend eternity in hell. And God, I want to spend forever with you. And I remember that. And what happened after that was that not only did God forgive me of my sins, but that he took my sin, my vileness, my uncleanness, my unrighteousness, and he took that, threw it away. And when God the Father looks at my life, all he sees is the purity and the righteousness of his son. He sees clean instead of seeing mean. And that will take us from a hopeless situation to a hopeful situation. And what does that forgiveness do? Look at it at the end of the verse. It says, that thou mayest be feared. Another way to look at this word feared from the original Hebrew is to revere or to worship. And so what does forgiveness from our sins do? It drives us to worship. So we're in a hopeless situation. It's bad. Out of the depths have I cried unto thee. God, please hear my prayer. Lord, if you're going to mark sins, there, there's really no hope at all. But God, you have offered forgiveness for us. It has dr driven us to worship you. But now what? What do we do now? We're in the hopeless situation. You've given us forgiveness. But now what do we do? Something that we're not really good at. Verse 5. I wait. I 
wait for the Lord. My soul doth wait, and in his word do I hope. Verse 6, my soul waiteth for the Lord more than they that watch for the morning. I say more than they that watch for the morning. The next step is something that we do not like to do, and that's wait. I told the teenagers this not too long ago. We live in what I call a microwave society. Everything is instant. Gone are the days of having to wait. Those days are in the past. I told the teenagers this. I don't know if they believe me or not, but I remember the days before internet. How many of you remember the days before internet? But I was like, I remember the days if I wanted to research something, if I wanted to know something, I had to wait to go back to school the next day or talk to my parents into going to a library, which never happened, by the way. I didn't want to go to a library. I wanted to play. I was like, yeah, if I wanted to know something and I knew that I had to go to a library to figure it out, I was like, no, it's playtime. We'll figure it out later. And I forgot about what I wanted to know. But I was like, I remember the days before internet. If you wanted to know something, you had to go to a library. You had to find a book that possibly talked about the subject matter that you wanted to know about. And then you had to sit down and read it in hoping to find the answer that you wanted. But I remember the days before internet. And I remember the days that we, the day that we got internet. I remember the first time I used it. My dad was like, all right, you have to get on the computer and you have to hit this button and then hit this button and then it's going to say dial. And you're going to hear the computer make a funny noise. So I took that mouse and clicked on it and then it started doing the noise. And you hope, you better hope that no one calls you (laughs) while you're trying to get onto the internet. Because you're not going to be able to get on there. And then if someone likes to talk who calls in... It's like, well, I guess it's going to be a while before I am able to get on the Internet. But if you were lucky enough to get dialed up to the Internet, and the young I don't know if they believe me or not, but I'm like, look, you could open up the Internet browser, type in the website you want to go to, walk to the kitchen, make yourself a sandwich, pour yourself some sweet tea, come back, and the page might be loaded. Do y'all remember those days? Some of you do? Yes. But gone, I mean, but that was, that was a while ago. Now, today, we live in a microwave society. I mean, we have computers in our pockets. And with literally an infinite amount of information literally at our fingertips. Gone are the days of having to wait. I want to know something. Done. I know it. Right there. But waiting is something hard to do. I've been in line through fast food, and if it's not going as fast as I think, what is going on with them? I mean, we've been sitting here for three and a half minutes, and my car's only moved eight feet. What's going on? Here's what I know. I know that you can cook steak in a microwave, but it tastes a whole lot better if you get some charcoal, throw it on a grill, let it light, cover it back up, Let those bricks get nice and warm. And then in about 45 minutes or so, go back out there and then throw that steak on. Can you eat steak cooked in a microwave? You can. But 
Is it worth the wait for putting it on a grill? Yes. He says in the verse, verse 5, but I wait for the Lord. And again, it's something we don't like to do. Everybody has patience. Just some is longer than others. And it also depends on what you're willing to wait for. Also depends on the situation. But sometimes waiting is not something we like to do very well. And the word wait here from the original Hebrew, it carries a, a, an anticipation, an eagerness. It's like we know that God's going to do something and we're just waiting for Him to do it. It's not like we're... All right, God, here's my situation. I'll just wait on you to fix it. It's not like that. I'm sorry, this, this side over here couldn't see me. We'll just wait on God to fix it. It's not like that. It's like, God, I know this situation. It's hopeless. It's terrible. And I know you're going to fix it. And I don't know how, but I'm going to wait for you to fix it. And we have it. We approach it with an eagerness. And while waiting is not fun. See, we work on a different timetable than God does. We want instant, but God, God's looking at eternity. That's what he works for. That's what he's looking at. He doesn't think the same way that we do. And, but waiting is not fun to do sometimes. Especially in hopeless situations. But then when we get to the end of the psalm, we're in the hopeless situation. We've cried out to God. We, we know we, we have found forgiveness. We are waiting on God to fix the hopeless situation. So what happens? Verse 7. Let Israel hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is mercy. And with Him is plenteous redemption. Verse 8. And he shall redeem Israel from all his iniquities. In verse 7, we find hope. I'm sorry, in verses 7 and 8, we find hope and we find help. You know, when you go back and think about if this human penman was David. And it came time for him and he was being hunted by Saul. God protected him, didn't he? In the book of 1 Samuel, Samuel anointed David to be king. And while it took him a while, he eventually assumed the throne. God protected him the entire time. When it came to his sin with Bathsheba, when he had committed adultery with her, and, and even though that the first baby that was conceived between them passed away, not too much long, not too much long after that, David and Bathsheba conceived again. And they had a baby boy and they named him Solomon. God offered forgiveness. And through that union, the third king of Israel, God offered forgiveness in that hopeless situation. God protected David when it came to his son Absalom as well. If it was Ezra referring to Nehemiah and all the situations there, sure, they had to face Sanballat and Tobiah and Geshem and all that stuff, but... They were able to rebuild the walls of the city of Jerusalem in record-setting time. But then on top of that, Ezra and Nehemiah led the nation of Israel into a spiritual revival. 
I love the story of Nehemiah. It's a wonderful, it's my, he, Nehemiah is my second, second favorite Old Testament Bible character, right behind Joseph. It's a wonderful book. But if the human penman was Ezra, writing about all the things that him and Nehemiah went through, God protected them against all the opposition, and they were able together to lead a revival of the nation of Israel. If it was Hezekiah when he was surrounded by Sennacherib in 2 Kings, you can read the story how God took care of Sennacherib and all them. And how when he was on his deathbed, God added 15 years to his life. So whatever the hopeless situation may be, I don't know, you may be in one right now. The, the, the saying goes, you're either sailing into a storm, you're in one, or you're coming out of one. That's kind of how the saying goes. And you may right now, at this very moment, find yourself in a hopeless situation. It may be something with family. It may be something with finances. It may be something that is physical. Something that is weighing you down. Something that you don't see how to get out of. And right now, you, we could really claim, verse 1, Out of the depths have I cried unto thee, O Lord. In this psalm, we find hope in the hopeless situation. Let's pray. Dear Lord, most precious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. Thank you for the many blessings that you have given us. Lord God, we thank you most importantly and above all for coming to this earth, dying for our sins and for giving us eternal life. And Lord, we thank you so much for your precious word and the comfort that it brings. Lord, your word says in the book of Job that man who is born of woman is a few days and full of trouble. Lord, it seems like hopeless situations are constantly coming into our lives. Out of the depths have I cried unto thee, O Lord. I don't know what situations that our church family or our visitors right now are facing. They might be in the middle of a hopeless situation right now at this very moment. But Lord, with you there is forgiveness. Lord, with you there is mercy. Lord, with you there is redemption. And Lord, with you there is hope. And Lord, whatever situation... Whatever burden that people are bearing, I pray, God, that you would help us, every single one of us, that we would find you. Because you, Lord, bring hope in the hopeless. Lord, we love you. Thank you for loving us. In Jesus' name we do pray. Amen.